When we turn to the scriptures, it's a good idea to be reminded that every area of thought, every area of study, there are biblical principles that are applicable. In fact, the real world is not the world which we function in and live and move and do all the things that we think of. It's just that we're so preoccupied with the physical realm that we overlook the idea that the real world is really the spiritual world, and that's where we will spend eternity as well. And all we're doing now is just preparing, for example, our place in the thousand-year millennial kingdom and for God's kingdom after that. So everything in Scripture is designed to give us insight in every particular area of life, including politics. And I think one of the things that the the passages that deal with uh, prophetic events, you can draw out from that uh, some principles that are applicable even in areas like politics, etc. In fact, this, that summit thing that you were describing there... They do a lot of worldview, and what we want to do is develop a biblical worldview as they try to present at those summit conferences. View everything from the lens of Scripture. In other words, what does Scripture say about every area or whatever area, whether it be a work area or whatever, what does Scripture teach about that? So, with that brief introduction, I think the understanding the times, I think we can draw things that are useful to you and I today. So we're in the Olivet Discourse, we'll continue essentially where we left off, and it has a long setting, or at least we spent a lot of time in it, and I haven't shown you some photographs just to kind of put you in the place of the disciples in the first century, so I just selected a few here. By way of introduction, there's a photograph of, obviously, modern-day Israel. In the foreground on the far right hand there is the famous King David Hotel, and then the old city there. You see the walls kind of in the center there. Everything behind the walls are the old city. This is looking east from the west, obviously, and Temple Mount is the most prominent feature there with the mosque, and then across that, or just beyond Temple Mount, is the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives. It's a real good aerial shot of the Mount of Olives there. Probably one of the most famous hotels in Israel, in Jerusalem. Yeah, a lot of people stay there. How was that picture for you? I was standing real high. <laughs> no, it was one of those things. It's, not white. it's, it's an white. aerial photograph. I'm not sure if it's a drone or not. Probably an ultralight. Think so? Probably an ultralight with a, a uh, image stabilized camera. Okay, good. Some of you know a lot more than I do. Closer shot, Mount of Olives, one of the churches there. I'm not sure we'll have time to visit that one. There's several other sites that will concentrate, those that will go on the trip, but that's another shot of the Mount of Olives. And the hillside would be the same as what Jesus and the disciples would have encountered as they listened to the Olivet Discourse. Those structures obviously would not be there in the first century. Is that rock naturally? It's limestone and it's generally whitish 
A lot of natural stones, limestone is the prominent type of stone that's used there. It's just a shot at night, gives you a little picture. It's from the Mount of Olives, looking at Temple Mount. And we've used this slide several times. That's the East Gate. Now, the tradition is, well, more than a tradition, the Bible tells us exactly where Jesus is going to set foot when he returns. You know where that is, right? Mount of Olives. And uh, the disciples, when Jesus ascended, were with Christ on the Mount of Olives when he ascended as well. And Acts 1 tells us that he will return in like manner and he will set foot, Zechariah tells us, right on the Mount of Olives. So these photographs are right exactly where Jesus will return to. And hopefully he'll do that while we're in Jerusalem. <laughs> well, we're not going to spend seven years there, so... But. Can, you, can you arrange that? Uh, <laughs> it'd be fun. That's extra. <laughs> and the tradition is that he will enter through the Golden or the East Gate. Bill? Are there a number of caves in the area? Because often where there's limestone, there are caves. Yeah, there's several graves and caves in that general area. I don't know about the Mount of Olives per se, but there are real close to the old city there. David? Well, Temple Mount, they've done a lot of excavation, and we'll, we're going to visit some of that, that excavation under Temple Mount. Yeah. yeah, but I think the flight that we looked at last time is outside of Jerusalem. they got to get out of town. Right. Yeah. Like, where did David go? In Gedi was one of them, near the Dead Sea, and there's others as well. Right. In fact, we'll visit some of those. Those are, they're going. Did you expound on that meaning a little bit of, of a supernatural splits, provides safe passage for them? Well, that's Zechariah 14, and we're going to look at a Revelation passage that may be the one that you're referring to. Yeah, Revelation uh, 12. We'll, we'll get there. And from the Mount of Olives, what the disciples would have seen in the first century, this is a reproduction or a model of first century Jerusalem. And obviously the buildings that they were talking about, most prominent would be the temple itself and the buildings associated with it. So that kind of puts you where the disciples were as they're listening to what Jesus is saying concerning his return primarily. And we've been emphasizing that he's talking about way in the future. I haven't shown some of these photographs, so I thought I'd remind you of the setting there. We're in the portion of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is explaining the longest answer that he gives that the disciples ask him. This is the longest exposition that he goes off on in answering that question. And it deals with prophetic events. Now, in the first century, they didn't suspect that it'd be 2,000 plus years, but from our perspective, obviously, it's long in the future, and even future from our day. So this tribulation period is quite unique, and I'm going to draw some of the uniqueness of it and emphasize some of that some more today. And we're in uh, verses 15 through 28, that extended portion there, and I title it uh, Great Tribulation. We've looked at verses 4 through 14. Jesus tells us 
In fact, his word is these are the beginning of birth pangs. Also, he also tells us in verse 21 that he describes the second half of a seven-year period as great tribulation and very unique and very, uh, very uh, difficult time. In fact, the most difficult than any other time preceding, and there's none that's going to come like it afterwards. We saw 15 through 22. In fact, we're still in the latter portion of that, the destructiveness of that period of time. I think that's the emphasis of those verses. And one of the reasons is this personage that arises that does a despicable desecration in the temple. And there are several passages all the way back to Daniel and some in the New Testament that describe that specific event. Daniel pinpoints the time on the prophetic calendar. We looked at that. We saw last time, this is the passage we looked at, 16 through 18. Jesus says, when this happens, when that desecration takes place, get out of town. And you'll have to leave very quickly. Don't fiddle around and don't go try to get your iPad or whatever. You're going to depart in great desperation, 16 through 18. And we will pick up in this last portion here the devastation of it. And we have a little description of it. We'll pick up that as well. And what I want to focus on are some of the conditions that will exist. That's on your outline sheet, conditions of this tribulation. Because I think this gives us insight into some of the purpose that God has. God is bringing everything to consummation, everything to its end, if you will. And things are moving, even in our culture, in that direction. And I think that's where we can draw some applications and understand the times in which we live in. So let's take a closer look at that portion. And just to summarize what we look, we've been looking at, we've looked at the first the tribulation, the first three and a half years, 14 through 14, on a timeline there, Jesus describes beginning of birth pangs. That'll begin at a very specific time that Daniel lays out as well. There is one week of Israel's history that remains that has never been fulfilled. Now, some try to put it back in the first century. We'll look at that again, remind you of it. But if you... Keep a sound hermeneutic or a sound interpretation of all of these passages. There's no way that these things have taken place any time before. So they're yet future. Jesus calls them the beginning of birth pangs. And it begins with that covenant with a world leader, a prince of that time with the nation of Israel. That begins the eschatological clock. It starts ticking again. And God's time frame begins to unfold once again. And it's a very specific time frame. So that's the beginning. Last time we looked, last two times, at that pivotal event in the middle. Daniel specifies the middle. And it seems to fall chronologically, even though Jesus doesn't make it precise. He just reminds that he's talking about what Daniel spoke of. So the disciples would have said, oh, Daniel's talking about the middle of the 70th week, this abomination that makes desolation, abomination (laughs) of desolation. What Jesus says, when that happens, get out. Get out of Jerusalem, get out of the area, 
because the persecution of this personage is going to become the most intense, uh, more intense than the first three and a half years. So the flight out of Israel. Now, on the chronology there, it basically takes place in the middle, but I can't kind of override the, the lettering there. To, yeah, it all takes place in the middle. It's not in the three and a half years. So, let's take a look at that devastation. I've broken that down into three parts. In 19, last time, uh, we talked about those that are most vulnerable. In other words, woe to those that are most vulnerable, those that are pregnant. Women that have are bearing children that are most vulnerable because it's going to be difficult. You're not going to be able to just walk. You're going to have to just get out of town as soon as you can. Any hindrance is going to prevent you. Some of them, many of them will die trying to get out. That's why he says that. He also talks in verse 20, uh, the seasons are going to affect you if, if the winter, or which is the rainy season, and in the rainy season, like here, they call them wadis in Israel. They're nothing more than arroyos. They're arroyos, really. And arroyos here, they're dry, right? You can cross them, walk in the middle of them, no problem. But if there's a rainstorm, then they can actually flood. And if one of them is in your way, then you can't cross. And that'll take place in wintertime. That's the rainy season. And it talks about the Sabbath. So difficult, harsh seasons or difficult times in terms of weather, pray that it not take place then because it's just going to make your escape more difficult during that period of time. And we left off in verse 21, verse the most destructive of all tribulations. So let's take a look at it. For then there will be great, a great tribulation. There's Jesus' little phrase there. And it's that little phrase that I take as describing the last three and a half years. It's so great, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. It is a very unique period of time. There have been difficult times in history. Jewish people have been under severe persecution. 586, their nation was destroyed. That was a very difficult time for any Jew. They were taken into captivity. People starved. People were killed. There were famines. There were all kinds of tribulation. But nothing like what is yet in the future. And Jesus is saying, not even like 586 B.C. Not even like 70 A.D. when a similar event took place where after people returned to, to Israel... In 70 A.D., they were scattered once again, and the nation utterly destroyed once again. Jewish people have been scattered throughout the known world since 70 A.D. up to 1948, when they reestablished themselves as a nation. Almost 2,000 years there. And what Jesus is saying, it that's not even in comparison to what's going to take place from the future of when he spoke and from the future of you and I. So not occurring since the beginning of the world. So it's a great tribulation. Great in that other passage indicate that it's worldwide. The 70 AD was local. Primarily Jerusalem. Extended beyond Jerusalem, but not not too much. It was Judea. This is worldwide. Somebody look up Revelation 3.10 and notice the 
universal aspect to it, the worldwide aspect to it. Got it? Got it, Jim, real quick? Read it loudly. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come on the whole world, to test those who dwell on the On the whole world. Did you see that? Now that's a promise to a particular church, but I think there's a principle there that implies that believers will not go through this period of time. And if you put all the passages of what together, including that one, it seems to indicate that there's a rapture that takes place before. But the emphasis that I want to make there is it's worldwide. It's going to come on the whole world, not just Judea, not just the 70 AD Jerusalem destruction, whole world. And there's other passages that emphasize that. We'll look at some of them in a moment. Now, this passage says that nothing has taken place in terms of time since the creation. Very unique. And the last part of verse, nor ever will. In other words, nothing in the future will be as severe as this period of time. Now, I think you have to really jump through hoops hermeneutically or interpretively to kind of see a fulfillment, for example, in 70 AD or in other area, other period of time. This is not the Holocaust of World War II. That was not it. It's going to be worse than the Holocaust. I tried to emphasize that last time. So it's hard to put these other views that some hold. For example, a historicist view. Remember I at the introduction... I described an approach to not only the book of Revelation, but the Olivet Discourse and prophecy in general. They see the events of Matthew chapter 24 as unfolding throughout church history. And a verse like verse 21, you have to really manipulate in order to get that idea. And other verses as well, you have to allegorize or you have to spiritualize those verses. And this is exactly what the preterist does in trying to say that all of this is fulfilled in 70 AD. Well, it's very difficult to get around verses like verse 21. Not ever since the beginning of creation. Okay? Or never even in the future. So we hold to what we describe as a futurist interpretation and believe that it is that specific time frame that Daniel speaks of, and I've been tying it to Daniel as Jesus does in this one verse, in verse 15, he ties it back to Daniel, particularly what takes place in the middle. And I think that's the best viewpoint of it. And if that's the case, along with all of the other passages, it seems to indicate that the church is gone, God is not going to deal with the world through the church anymore. He's going to deal with the world through the nation of Israel again. And this will be Israel's final week of years, if you will. So God has not abandoned Israel entirely. They're experiencing what Paul describes as a partial hardening. In other words, they're not able to see the gospel clearly. Now, individual Jews keep coming to Christ but not as a national entity, not as a group, not as a a people, if you will. So we take a futurist view based on passages like this that I think are crystal clear, and you have to really allegorize in order to get anything different. So never in the future, 
And it is unique. And let's look at some other passages that indicate the uniqueness. And let's get some people to read these. Somebody, somebody get Jeremiah 30, verse 7. You got that one, Jim? Somebody get uh, Daniel 12. Okay. Bob in the back. Zephaniah 1. David. Revelation. You got that one? Good. And somebody get 9. All right, Connie. Great. Okay. You got Jeremiah 37. Jim, go ahead with that one. Read loud. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Okay, that day is great. Similar to what Jesus says. There's no day like it. Now when he says day, he's talking about that period of time. There's not no period like it. Keep reading. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. In other words, Israel's tribulation. That's what we've been emphasizing. Keep reading. But he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bond, and strangers will no longer make them slaves. Okay. The emphasis, it's a terrible time, but it has a purpose. The purpose of that time is to bring Israel to faith, to bring Israel to a recognition that Jesus was the Messiah and still is. Okay, Daniel 12.1. Notice the uniqueness of it as well. Go ahead, Bob. Now at that time, Michael, the great who stands guard over the suns will arise, and there will be a time of distress that never occurs as a nation until that time. Okay, notice the phrase there. Has never occurred. The uniqueness of it, the drasticness of it, the destructiveness of it. Keep reading. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book... Whose people are addressed here? Daniel's people. The angel is revealing to Daniel, your people. Alright? Jewish people. Keep reading. Will be rescued. They will be rescued. This is a time of salvation for the nation of Israel. See that? See the uniqueness? Who's got Zephaniah? See, who had that one? David? 14 through 18, Zephaniah 14 through 18, it describes that period of time. Go ahead. The great day of the Lord is near, is near, and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath. Day Day of of wrath. Judgment. Keep reading. A day of trouble and distress. A day of weakness and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. They have the trumpet and alarm against fenced cities and against the high towers. Okay, it's a terrible time. You got the point there? And he goes on and on and on. You didn't even finish the passage, but if you keep reading, you see that it just describes more devastation, more difficulty, more problem. We'll stop right there just for the sake of time. So Zephaniah. Now, in the first century, it had not taken place yet. John is still in 95 A.D., This is after 70 A.D. The bulk of the book of Revelation, I take it, describes this last week, the 70th week of Daniel. John, at the end of the first century, after 70 A.D., I'll stress that, is still looking forward. And by the way, the preterists, what do they do with the book of Revelation? Well, what do they have to do with the book of Revelation? Because John, if John is writing in 95 A.D., what do they have to do? They have to put John writing the book of Revelation before 70 A.D. But it just doesn't work. 
historically. John writes probably 95 after 70 AD, and he gives the most detailed description of Daniel's 70th week that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. From chapters 6 through chapters, even you could include 19, because 19 is the second coming, a description of the second coming, which ends that 70, 70th week, the seven-year period of tribulation. Uh, Revelation 6-9, you got that one? And now I saw a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And there followed after him another horse, whose rider's name was Hell. They were given control of one-fourth of the earth to kill with war and famine and disease and wild animals. Okay, this is just one judgment. Just one event that's described. And did you catch it, how devastating it is? How many people die in that one event? A fourth of the world. And Bill has calculated, if if you're calculating based on 8 billion people, right? In other words, if and we're not quite there yet, but if, in fact, there are 8 billion people, a fourth of that, obviously, is 2 billion. All right? It doesn't take uh, Sandia Labs scientists to figure that out. And that's just one judgment in chapter 6. One seal judgment. Notice another event in chapter 918. And keep the numbers in mind if you figure it based on 8 billion. If two are killed, and doesn't take a Sandia Labs scientist, how many is left? Six. Keep that number in mind. 918. Who's got that one? You got it? I saw, mm-hmm. I saw their horses spread out before, before me in my vision. Their riders wore fiery red breastplates. Those In other words, there's going to be war. Remember, wars and rumors and wars? This is one of them. Go ahead. Though some were sky blue and others yellow, the horses' heads looked much like lions, and smoke and fire and flaming sulfur billowed from their mouths, killing one-third of all mankind. one Third of all mankind. Three into six is what? Another two billion. Two billion plus how many? Two billion. In two judgments during this seven-year period, half the population is wiped out. And the numbers work no matter what the population is at that time. In other words, if there's less, then it's still half the population. Make sense? This is a unique period of time. Nothing like that has ever occurred in time where half the population of the world in a very short period of time is wiped out. And there's other verses. There's a world war that takes place. At least, World War III, at least. There's a huge earthquake that is larger than anything that has ever taken place. Tectonic effects. Mary Lee. This is before the Battle of Armageddon and all that too, isn't it? Yes. This is before the Battle of Armageddon. That's the, the that big war that is World War called Armageddon because of what it says in the book of Revelation. This is a unique period of time that I think only fits what Daniel describes in Daniel's seventieth week. 
and what most of the book of Revelation describes. And I just selected a couple of passages. There's other devastating things. A third of all the vegetation is destroyed in another judgment. A third of all sea life is destroyed on another judgment. So these things begin to multiply. This begins to really tear up everything on the face of the earth. And there's a purpose for it. We'll take a look at that in a moment. So we have the abomination of desolation, and then that begins the last three and a half, Jesus calls great tribulation. And that's where I see verses 15 through 28. Make sense? Let's look at some of the conditions. And these conditions kind of tell us a little bit of what God is doing here. And I've got some of these, at least the beginnings of these, on your outline sheet. Satan is going to be prominent during this period of time. And what I describe here is Satan's finest hour, if you want to use the word finest, in a kind of twisted, <laughs> diabolical sense. In other words, seconds of fame. 15 seconds of fame. <laughs> okay, 15 minutes or whatever. In other words, he knows his time is near. In other words, the end of his career is nearly over. And in a twisted way, in a demonic way, he is going to pour out as much devastation as he can. And much of what takes place during that period of time cannot be explained in any other way than it has to be satanic. And there's never been a satanic period of time on the face of the earth that will be comparable to that seven-year period of time. Now, Jesus cast out lots of demons, and there was a lot of demonic activity in the first century. What you're going to see, well, hopefully we will not, let's see it from a distance. What will take place during that time will not, will be worse than anything that's ever taken place. And there's other passages, uh, Revelation 12, there's a war in heaven, Satan is cast to the earth. So Satan will be limited to the earth in terms of his activity, and you can describe it as Satan's finest hour. Secondly, it's man's final product. In other words, all that man can do. And we understand the technology that we have today. Our technology is going to take us probably into that period of time. This is the best that man can do, and all it is is devastation. And a lot of the judgments are as a result of man's doing. God will turn them into consequences of what man decides. Some of the devastation, if you look at them carefully, are as a result of what man does and the consequences of, of choices and sin. So it's man's final product. What happened to evolution? I thought we were supposed to get better. Well, man degenerates into a point where he brings himself to a point of almost self-annihilation. Worldwide suicide, if you will, as a, as a species. So it's man's final product. The best that man can produce is illustrated in that. And I think one of the things that God is showing is the futility of mankind apart from what God can produce and the weakness and frailty of mankind apart from God. This is what it's going to look like. If man is left to himself, this is what man produces. Now, you've had glimpses of this throughout history, before the Genesis flood. Now, there's not much data given in the Genesis account, 
But God brought a worldwide flood to end man's destructiveness at that time. There was violence on the face of the earth. We saw a little glimpse of that at Sodom and Gomorrah. And the issue of sodomy, I guess you could say, where we get the word. And the moral corruption of at least that local area, at least Sodom and the cities, and what God did in that situation. And you've seen glimpses of that throughout history as well, and we could come up with a list of examples. But we're going to see even worse what man can produce on his own, and this is the best that man can do. Thirdly, it will be the world's final uniting. The world's final uniting. We will have a one world system. So politically, man cannot solve the problems. There's a movement today in terms of one world government under a one world economy led by a one world religion that has always persisted ever since Babel and continues to our time frame. This is the whole attitude of statism, big government. Can I say the word liberalism? This is the underlying idea of liberal thinking or liberal worldview. One world uniting. And what are you going to have? You're going to have the most destructive totalitarian system that ever existed. And what's going to result from that is, in fact, great death. Such that on two occasions, one, a quarter of uh, the population destroyed, and then next, the a third of the population destroyed. And I see those as two separate judgments, two separate events or occurrences. The world's final uniting. A one world system contrary and antagonistic to to God himself and everything God stands for. Fourthly, it's going to be, and this is the focus, and the most important aspect and the most important purpose, it's Israel's ultimate salvation. And apparently it's going to take this devastation to bring people, Jewish people as a nation, to unite that their only hope is a Messiah and the prophets, those two prophets, are going to say, Jesus is that Messiah. 144,000 are converted and believe. God empowers them to be 144,000 evangelists. And they bring about the greatest revival the world has ever seen. This takes place during this seven-year period of time. Does that make sense? And particularly, the nation of Israel is converted. Not every single Jew, but in terms of the leadership and the official stand of the nation will be Jesus is the only salvation. Not only from the physical calamity, but in terms of spiritual things as well. And the nation will in fact call on the name of the Lord. And when they call on the name of the Lord, the Lord will come and deliver them. So it's their ultimate salvation. It's also a period of refining. It'll refine the nation of Israel and prepare them for the millennial kingdom, which is yet future as well. We're not in the kingdom now. Fourthly, it's God's closing judgments. Now, I didn't select the word final because there's still a judgment at the end of the millennium, but it begins the sequence of judgments 
that will culminate or consummate all of God's judgment. And remember, what is judgment? God's separating out evil from that that he loves. And that will be completed. You could view world history as God ultimately beginning the process early and then ending the process of separating evil or dealing with the issue of evil. Evil began in Genesis chapter 3. The rest of world history is a process of God dealing with sin. And he dealt with sin once and for all on the cross, and he will deal with sin in the ultimate and end at the end of the age, beginning with this seven-year period of time. The earth will be judged. It's like God wiping the slate clean. In other words, wiping the earth clean of sin in preparation for a millennial kingdom. Make sense? So it's God's closing judgments. And then number six there, it's God's consummating work. He's going to begin the process of ending world history. Now there's going to be a thousand years, but basically the seven-year period begins the end of world history. The end of man's efforts, man's product. Jesus, the thousand years, is going to explain to us and show us what we need is not world government. What we need is God ruling. A theocracy, as Linda just Yeah, the brilliant scholar of Linda. A theocracy where God rules where God is king, where Jesus Christ, the sinless one, rules on a throne. Things are going to be drastically different. That is what you yearn for. So God's going to consummate his work. He will begin the process of fulfilling all of the covenants of Israel. None of the covenants of Israel have been fulfilled yet. Abrahamic covenant has not been fulfilled totally. It'll find its final fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. And it'll begin during the seven-year period of time. And that applies to the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, even Mosaic covenant, even though it was fulfilled in Christ in the first coming. And certainly it'll fulfill the new covenant. It'll be during the tribulation that Israel receives the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant. It's during the seven year that Israel will be converted Those are the elements of the new covenant. And they will extend into the millennial kingdom. So God is going to consummate his work during that seven-year period of time. So I see this as very unique. Not fulfilled in 70 AD. Not fulfilled throughout church history. But still awaits a future time when God is going to be very active. Satan's going to be active as well. But he's going to come to an end. Man is going to try to do his best. He's going to totally fail. The world is going to try to unite, and that's not going to work as well. It's going to end in a very, what's the word? Oppressive is the word. Very oppressive situation of totalitarian rule. And in the midst of that, Israel will be saved, as Paul says in uh, Romans 11. Because God is working his work of separating out its judgment, and bringing to a completion his plan for all of uh, the universe. See the uniqueness there? And then in verse 22, 
just to kind of emphasize how severe it is, had it prolonged, had this time period gone, we would have the annihilation of all mankind. And that's the point of verse 22. So we have a, a note of the diminishing of the tribulation. If you haven't noticed, notice all the D's in there. Alliteration. Very nice. Destructiveness of the tribulation, despicable desecration, departure in desperation, devastation of the tribulation, destructiveness on the vulnerable, the difficulty of harsh seasons, most destructive of all tribulations, and now the diminishing of the tribulation. You got it? took hours to think about it. Okay, verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's going to be maybe a few days less than three and a half years? Less than 1,260 days? Well, can't mean that because I think we have too many passages that make it so precise. The idea here is probably in terms of God in eternity past, he already set that the days would be shorter. In other words, had the days gone beyond the three and a half, none, none in mankind would survive. So the three and a half years is a cutting short, if you will. In other words, had God allowed things to just progress as they were progressing, no one would survive, is the point. Is that sort of like uh, God... The punishment is lifted. He, he does not. He does not continue to punish, which the, the well-deserved punishment. But he is punished, 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 punished. He's given them what they did. Punish, punish, punish. Uh, but then he says, "Okay." And so he, in a sense, relents from continued, well-deserved continued wrath being poured out. Right, and and I think he determined this in eternity past. In other words. The limitation is that last three and a half years. 1260 days. It's very precise. Book of Revelation, book of Daniel. 1260 days, another passage, 42 months. That is the limitation. That is the cutting short of it. David. I think the idea of a cup of wrath being poured out is not necessarily the Lord is limited to a cup. But that indicates to us that there is a limit. Yeah. Yeah, there are limits. And God knows, we don't, but he knows what it's going to take to get what he has planned accomplished. And he's going to do it in seven years, two, three and a half year periods. All right? And unless those days had been short, no life would have been saved. And if you take the view that we take, you can see why. Half the population is wiped out and those are just on two judgments, like Mary Lee pointed out, that doesn't include that final world war where many others are destroyed as well. But during this time, people Yeah, this is the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Now, a lot of those believers, as we said earlier, a lot of them will be martyred. A lot of them will die. But this will be the, the greatest revival the world has ever seen. In fact, you can include that on your list of conditions as well. That way you end up with a perfect number of seven. <laughs> so we looked at the uniqueness. Let's close by looking at a couple of passages that are more positive. In terms of Israel... <laughs> yeah, I don't want you to leave here depressed. <laughs> Pardon me? Okay. We're going to go first. 
And it should motivate us to be concerned about people to bring them alongside with us. In other words, evangelism should be the motivation. Somebody get 12.6. Got it? And somebody, well, why don't you read all of it? Go ahead and start in 12.6. And this pertains to the nation of Israel. In other words, God is doing all of this in order to bring his people to faith And in the midst of all this, I think the context of the Revelation 12 passage is, in fact, this period of time when Israel is going to flee. I think it parallels what Jesus is saying. Remember I've said that several things in the Olivet Discourse parallel what John gives more detail in the book of Revelation. This is another one of those in relationship to the nation of Israel. You got 12.6? Right. In fact, before you read that, let me give you a little context here. Chapters 12 and 13 deal with the main characters of this period of time. And he's going to talk about a woman. Now, it's a symbol. There are symbols in the book of Revelation, but you use proper hermeneutical principles to interpret symbols. All right? The woman... In other words, you can't make these symbols mean what you want them to make. You have to look for clues in the context to uh, interpret them properly. And what John is saying, this woman represents the nation of Israel. That's verses 1 and 2. We won't look at those. And then in 3 and 4, it talks about what, what you were talking about, the dragon, what Mal was alluding to. That's another symbol. In fact, the context clues you in. In other words, it says, this is a, what's the word there, a sign? It's a symbol. A dragon. What does a dragon stand for? Satan. So we have the woman who is Israel and Satan, and Satan is going to try to destroy the woman. And the woman has a male child. That's Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus comes from the nation of Israel. That's probably the clearest symbol, this male child. In fact, it's almost not even a symbol. That's verses 5 and 6. And then it talks about war and wrath in uh, chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. And we're going to read the verse preceding it, and then we'll skip to the other verses after it that pertains to Israel. Incidentally, later on in Revelation, Satan, the dragon, is specifically identified as... In verse 9. Very specifically interpreted for us. Very good. Read verse 6. That's ascension. Fled in the woman fled into the wilderness. That's what Jesus is commanding in the Olivet Discourse. Get out of town. She fled into the wilderness. Then what? Where she had a place by God. God prepares a place. A provision is made. Now if you go back to, skip to verse 12 through 17, it's going to describe this supernatural provision for the woman. God is going to protect the woman. Can you read the last little part of that, the six? Yeah, like, read. This is kind of what yeah, go ahead. Yeah, read the end of verse six and then skip to 12. So that she would be nourished for 1,200 days. Very good, Jeremy. Did you count that? How many days? Okay. Three and a half years of days there. Very good. And being nourished. Nourished. Right. She's in the desert. 
Some have suggested maybe God provides manna again. Who knows? The text doesn't, there's not a verse that tells us. But that one tells us she's nourished. In other words, she's provided for. Now skip to 12 through 17. And that's where we'll have to stop today. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice! There's praise. There's reason to rejoice. God is not abandoning his own. Keep reading. Rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come, having a great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Okay, the devil has a short time. There's the little phrase there. Okay, keep reading. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's the same thing that we've been talking about in the Alvet Discourse, the persecution of Jewish people. And the most severe is after that abomination that makes desolate, when they have to leave, and then keep reading. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to her. She could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she would nourish for a time. Time, first of all, singular. Times, plural. Half a time, what is that? Three and a half years. She's nourished. This is the last half of this great period, great tribulation period of time. She was nourished from the presence of the serpent. Once again, the serpent. Right. And the serpent poured water like a river out of the depth of the moon, so that she caused her to be swept away from the fall. The earth helped the woman, and it was about to drag out the river. The dragon caught up. So the dragon was enraged with the woman to make war with her children. The rest of her children. In other words, he says, if I can't destroy Israel, I'm going to destroy the other believers, Gentiles. Yeah, very good. God always protects his own, preserves them. Now, they may be martyred, but that's a form of protection. In other words, they have God's provision. And we can be assured and apply that to us as well. No matter what we will go through, we belong to him, and even if it's persecution, God is going to preserve us through it, or even if we have to face martyrdom, that's part of the provision. And later on in Revelation, the headed martyrs are called out specifically, and they will reign with Jesus. Reign, yeah, chapter 20, very good. Exactly. Yes. Closing thought. What God is doing during this period of time, he's dealing with evil. We can praise him. In spite of how terrible it is, and it just illustrates the devastation of sin, but God deals with it. We can praise our Lord for dealing with evil. Who wants to close for us? Bob. Father, we thank you to see the glory you have and power in all time. You're in your control. Tell you desire for to accomplish, but to live the rest of our lives following your, your servants on this responsibility. Amen.